0: Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one bold page of Talmud a day. The Talmud, as you know, is not a book that tries away from confrontation. But today's pages, the Darim 45 and 46, kick things off with an interesting bit of Mishnah that is all about confrontation. Have a listen. Partners who vowed not to derive benefit from one another are prohibited from entering into a courtyard that they jointly own, since each one has a portion in it and benefits from the share owned by the other, thereby leading to a violation of the vow. Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov says, It is permitted for both to use the courtyard, as it could be said that since each has a portion in the courtyard, this one enters into his own portion, and that one enters into his own portion. Sure, it's a legal question, I guess, but as always with the Talmud, it's also a philosophical question. Because our world, if you think about it, is a lot like that shared courtyard. You don't have to go much past, say, first grade to learn that sharing is caring, that we listen to and respect everyone, that we're all alike and should therefore all get along. Which is great, until we run into people who think very differently who seem to have a radically different idea of how to be in the world, who believe that they have the right, maybe even the obligation, to fight us and win, to make sure their opinions are heard louder than all others, to quash dissent and silence conversation, to take over, in other words, everyone's portion in the courtyard that we all share. You find these people everywhere. Everywhere you look, in politics, in religion, in world affairs, in the culture, there are those who are trying to take over that figurative shirt courtyard and kick out anyone and everyone who doesn't think like them? Is the solution then simply following the wisdom of the Mishnah and continuing to use our portion of the courtyard while making sure we don't enter anyone else's domain and don't infringe on anyone else's rights and claims? And how should we defend ourselves when our portion of the courtyard comes under attack? These are some of the questions our guest today has explored. He's Professor Richard Landis, and once upon a time, he was a medievalist. But then, he started noticing that the same sort of millennial energy, namely the sort of apocalyptic, radical, violent movements you saw around the year 1000, are popping back up now, a thousand years later. He wrote a book about it, which was just published. It's called, Can the Whole World Be Wrong? And it's about the sad inability of too many lovely and well-meaning people to understand the medieval mentality that drives too many not-lovely and not-well-meaning people to do things like launch violent campaigns and target innocent civilians. Here's a snippet from our conversation. If you point out uh, traits of a culture that sort of are astray from from what we would consider you know our own you're making some kind of value judgment you're saying oh these people are quote unquote primitive or barbarian right, or right, they're lesser right. than you're saying guys you don't you don't need value judgments here you just need to be an honest assessor and say cultures are different True diversity, right, of, of opinion right. and thought. Uh, and in some cultures, you know, some cultures have some values. Other cultures have other values. Uh, and you have to acknowledge this and not assume that everyone's playing by your rules. Well, in a
1: sense, that there's no question that it's a value judgment. There's no question that a modern progressive values positive some interactions, values being nice to other people, values all the things that Western society has developed over the course of, I would argue, a millennia. It's impossible to describe these cultures, even if I don't make the value judgment, that people aren't going to make that value judgment. The weird thing is that the move they make is to deny that the other cultures are different right. rather than acknowledge
0: what's going on. How does a nice medievalist like you end up here in the present in in, in this murky political ideological landscape?
1: I went into the Middle Ages to study Economic growth. My father, David Landis, wealth and poverty of nations. I grew up with the question, why the West? And, you know, his answer is culture. Jared Diamond's answer is, you know, the look of the draw. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm obviously of the culture school. And I believe that one of the key dimensions of this is the messianic vision of, you know, swords and the plowshare spears and the pruning hooks, that the world, as it is is unjust, and that at some point in the future it will be just. And the active transformative version of this, which includes science in the West, has led to a radical transformation of our culture.
0: How do you explain that the proliferation of, of these narratives everywhere you look? Why do we get so many of these stories?
1: Well, it's interesting. When I was working on millennialism in the 1990s, people sort of, you know, said, oh, you're just trying to make a lot of money out of the coming year 2000, but it's really... And I remember a colleague of mine at BU introducing me two days after 9-11, to a group of scholars and saying, and here's Richard Landis, he works on millennialism, so we won't have anything to do for the next 999 years. you know. And we just got attacked by an apocalyptic millennial movement, and there's no acknowledgement. So when I was working on it then, it was very hard to get people to understand how important it was. And one of the things that I said was, look, you know, in Asterix, the reason Obelix doesn't have to drink the potion is because he fell in the vat when he was a kid. Well, America fell in the millennial vat when they were babies. This is a culture that is drenched in millennial aspirations. The 60s was a millennial movement. A millennial movement is a movement that believes in a future period in which the evil in this world will be purged and we will live in a messianic era. So it's a thousand-year messianic era. And I use apocalyptic to mean you think it's now. You think it's happening now. And there are active ones where we have to bring it about. There are passive ones where we wait for God or a comet to wipe out the earth or something. But we're coming up to this dramatic transformation. And I think that 2000 actually did sort of kick off a lot of, uh, I'd call it soft millennialism. It wasn't the millennialism of the jihadis, uh, active cataclysmic. It was active transformative. And I think that you see it in the the sudden explosion of a, a peace movement peace movement, in quotes, in opposition to America, in opposition to Israel, 2002, 2003, you know, tens of millions of people around the world were demonstrating and believing. And you have people writing into the New York Times uh, uh, saying, uh, I think Schelling wrote in and said, you know, we represent the counter hegemon to the United States. You know, the world is with us, and we speak for the world, and we want peace. And meantime, they're allied with, And they brought to these assemblies some of the nastiest imperialists on the planet. So you end up with the anti-imperialism of fools. And Judith Butler says Hamas and Hezbollah, two of these incredibly regressive jihadi movements, are members of the global progressive left. Why? Because they're anti-imperialist. Why are they anti-imperialist? They oppose American imperialism. You just embrace the most vicious imperialist movements on the planet. And you're calling them anti-imperialists because they're against the guys you don't like. You mentioned which is Judith, yourself.
0: You mentioned the, the the philosopher Judith Butler. It, it seems to me that uh, a lot of the people uh, in, in this movement who who think this way right just so happened to to be Jewish. To be uh, Jewish. How how do you explain that?
1: <laughs> well, look, I mean, <laughs> Jews are also like Americans. Uh, Just just, just like everyone
0: else, but more so.
1: Just like everyone else, but more so. So there's that problem. And then one of the things that I talk about is both the power and the danger of self-criticism. That self-criticism is, I think, you know, including humor, because most of our humor is self-critical, it is probably the distinguishing feature of Jews, whether they're religious or secular. This tendency to be self-critical. In fact, most Jews achieve their secularity by being critical of their own tradition and so on. So it's a very powerful thing. It's why we're so good in a civil society that lets us play by the rules of everybody else because academia, science, medicine, all of these fields depend on the ability to be self-critical. The problem is when you get to what I call masochistic omnipotence syndrome. And that is the belief that it's all our fault. And if only we could be better, we could
0: change the world.
1: That you're willing to take responsibility even for stuff you're not responsible for.
0: Professor Richard Landis, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And get your Take One t-shirts and mugs at tabletstudios.com. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Daf Yomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Robert Scaramuccio, Mark Oppenheimer, and Sarah Fredmanator. For more information, go to tabletmag.com take one or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You could find us on Twitter at takeoneduffyomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope. We have made your day a little more familiar.